Great job. Okay, I forgot to do something during the welcome. I forgot to tell you about Children's Church. In case you already knew, you had the slide ready. We have Children's Church starting for the first time this summer. We've done it in previous summers, but today's the first day. But it's for children five years old through fifth grade. They can go out this door with Bill and Paula across the lobby into the little chapel to the right. So they have a special service, part of Child Evangelism Fellowship, and I encourage you to make uh, use of that if you're here and you're five through fifth grade. If you have a child who's five through fifth grade, you can exit now, and I'll stall for a minute while y'all head that way. The other thing I didn't mention was the offering. You'll see in the bulletin it says that they are going to be dismissed during the offering. Well, if you put your offering in the plate after the service is over, it would be a little late for them to be dismissed. So there's baskets in the back. There's baskets in each lobby. And there will be some even halfway back after the service is over for your offering. So we are continuing to be careful with protocols from COVID. I'll actually stand at the back. I'll shake your hand if you want to shake my hand. And I encourage you to use the hand sanitizers. I have all my shots. So I'm vaccinated against things like rabies and distemper and bordetella and all of those things, including the coronavirus vaccine. So uh, enough about all that. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. I'm teaching through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, and we're going to get to a point of the influence of the Apostle Paul. My message today is entitled Influence. Influence. The greatest missionary of the first century had to be the Apostle Paul. Who has been like that? I don't know that I would compare anybody to the Apostle Paul, but one of the greatest missionaries of the last couple of hundred years was a guy named Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China. And um, I remember studying him in seminary, but the influence of Hudson Taylor was so great that even towards the end of his life or after his death, the China, Chinese government commissioned an author to write a biography of Hudson Taylor. And the purpose of the biography was to paint him in a bad light. He was such a hero among Christians, not only in China, but really around the world as a missionary of the gospel in China, literally gave his life to tell people about Jesus in China, that they wanted to discredit him. As the author was doing his research, he was increasingly impressed by Taylor's saintly character and godly life and found it extremely difficult to carry out this assigned task with a clear conscience. Eventually, at the risk of his life, the guy commissioned by the Chinese government to write the biography, laid his pen down, and personally trusted Christ as his own Lord and Savior. Never met Hudson Taylor, but the influence of Hudson Taylor's life impacted him to the point that he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. So my question for you this morning is, what about your influence? You know, now, when you hear the word influence, a lot of you are thinking influencer, right? If, you, if you've got the opportunity to be an influence, you can be on social media, be an instant influencer. I don't think Paul had an Instagram account, but it's amazing to me that some people through Instagram can make hundreds of thousands of dollars influencing people to wear the right clothes or go to the right places on vacation or countless other things that is influenced by them. So if, if you're here, go figure out what you can influence people to do. Get online and make a million dollars where you probably won't make that much, but you'll make a lot. So let's look at influence. Influence is this. If you're going to influence people, are you going to influ- if somebody followed your life, would they get closer to Christ or further away? It's not important the clothes they wear or where they go on vacation. It's not important that they're successful in anything other than this, that their life counts for the gospel. And if you follow them, you'll get closer to Christ. 
that's the point of Paul's influence that we're looking at this morning. So follow along. In fact, you can be a bad influencer, so let me just get that out of the way. Influencers that Paul is is, is, is good influence. So let me read verses 24 and following. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been made manifest to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Here's the point I want you to leave with this morning. I want you to be like the Apostle Paul. I want you to influence people to trust Christ as their Lord and Savior and influence people through discipleship to follow Jesus Christ as they grow closer to Christ. So, Paul says... Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Just stop there for a minute. Paul's saying he rejoices in his suffering? How could he possibly find joy in the suffering? Well, the point is he finds joy in it because there's a purpose to the suffering that he's enduring. And you think about what, what, how did Paul suffer? The word joy, rejoice means to be cheerful, calmly happy. Keep in mind for the Apostle Paul, this man, he's writing this from a Roman prison cell. And he's saying, as I sit here and write this letter to a church at Colossae, I am joyful. That is incredible to me. And he's joyful even in his sufferings. So you say, well, how did Paul ever suffer? Let me just read a short passage that indicates the suffering of Paul. I want you to follow along in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Why 39? Well, if you read Deuteronomy, you were allowed legally to give 40 lashes. If you gave more than 40 lashes, you could be punished for giving too many lashes. So they cut it short, and they said, just in case we miscounted, we're only going to give you 39 lashes. And, of course, if you're the one about to be beat, you're thinking, man, great, I got off easy. No, 39 lashes. He received that five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. What's the difference? The Jewish custom was lashes. The Roman custom was to beat you with rods. So three times he was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and a night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, even without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such things, external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. So Paul says, as I write this from a Roman prison cell, I have suffered. Paul has suffered like none of us have ever suffered, I'm sure. And yet Paul says, I rejoice. And he goes on to explain why he, why he could experience joy, because it was for their sake, on behalf of his body, the church. When Paul talks about the church, he uses a word that means called out ones. And he's writing about not just the church at Colossae, but as this letter was shared and the bigger 
economy of the church was is the church universal. It's those who place faith in Christ and have joined together like those in Colossae. And Paul said, I am doing my share to build up the body for the sake of the church and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. When you hear that, you think, wait, wait a minute. There's something lacking in Christ's afflictions? Absolutely not. He's already made the case previous to this in this passage that Jesus is enough. I'll remind you of this most every week. The two big fallacies, the two big heresies that Paul writes against is some of the Judaizers were saying Jesus wasn't enough. They've come to faith in Christ, but they said that in order to be a full Christian, you've got to become a Jew first. So you've got to, you've got to complete all the Jewish law. And so Paul's writing against that. Jesus is enough. When Jesus died on the cross, he suffered once and for all for the penalty and payment for sin, and he's not paying that anymore. There's nothing that has to re-suffer in him. It's our suffering in Christ. So the first heresy is Jesus wasn't enough. The other heresy is Jesus wasn't really God. That God, the Gnostics, which became bigger in the next century, but the Gnostics would have said it's all about knowledge, it's all about God, and God can't touch earth. So he emanated these little spirit beings that the closer they got to earth, the more evil they got. So you're going to see, you've got to keep that in mind as you hear what Paul's teaching in Colossians chapter 1. But Paul says, I consider it joy. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake because he saw the result of the gospel being spread. And he said, I make up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples in the upper room, that part of that upper room discourse that we see in, in John's gospel, he said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. A slave's not greater than his master. And Jesus said, you need to be ready for the fact that you're going to suffer. He's talking to men in that room, the 11 that were left in the room, you're going to suffer. And it's incredible to see the suffering of the disciples. It's incredible to see the death that they encountered. And so Paul says, I'm making up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. He's suffering because the enemy can't touch Christ. So who does the enemy try to touch? He tries to touch us. And he's hoping to affect and hurt Christ through hurting us. So Paul says, I suffer. In fact, Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. In fact, Paul, on the road to Damascus, when his name was Saul, his Hebrew name, Saul, Remember when Jesus encountered him on the road to Damascus? Jesus didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting them? He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Turning point, conversion, salvation experience for the Apostle Paul. And for Jesus to take it that personally, anytime you suffer, Jesus would say, Satan, why are you persecuting me? Do this, my child. So Paul says, I rejoice in the suffering. You suffer because of sin. Jesus suffered for sin you and i suffer because we still live in a fallen age where satan does have some rule and authority and he can come against us but there's coming a day when we're going to spend eternity with god and we're not going to experience any more suffering there'll be no pain there no more sorrow no more tears so i don't know how you're suffering today if you look at the world my question is what does suffering look like today in paul's day it was beatings in paul's days it was to be put to death so the question is, what does that look like today? Well, it could look like being shunned from friends. It could mean losing your job. It could mean being beaten. It could mean being put in prison. And it could, in some parts of our country or world, be put to death. So Paul says, when you see that happening, find joy in it. That can only happen through the Holy Spirit. You're not going to run into it and say, you know, I'm looking to how I could suffer today. 
Now, we don't run towards suffering, but we don't run from it either. God says, or Paul is saying, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, the church. So that is the reason for Paul's joy. Let's look at the extent of Paul's obedience. Paul says, of this church, I was made a minister. Paul didn't volunteer for this. In fact, on the road to Damascus was not really his calling to ministry. It was his salvation experience. Paul was, what was Paul doing? When he was known as Saul, his Hebrew name, he was persecuting the church. So the very thing he says, I'm suffering now because of my dedication to the church. Paul used to be the one bringing that persecution and that suffering. He used to be the one dragging people back to Jerusalem. He used to be the one in charge of the beatings and even putting people in prison and ultimately putting people to death. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death, holding the cloaks of the men who were throwing and casting the stones. And it says he was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. But what's happened? He's come to faith in Christ. He's been trained in Christ. He already knew the Old Testament, but God has brought him into a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ, his son. And he says, this ministry, this stewardship from God has been brought and bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul considered himself a steward. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The, steward, the word steward means to be a household manager. And Paul said, listen, this isn't about me. I'm not managing my own affairs. I've been placed in charge of the management of the church. And so the stewardship that God had entrusted him, Paul has taken on, and he's taken very seriously that he wanted to fully complete fully carry out. And I love the word so that. That's actually two words. But when you see that in Scripture, you have to look and say, okay, this is true. Paul's been called into ministry. Paul's been given stewardship by God so that what would happen? So that the preaching of the word would take place. Preaching of the mystery. And you hear mystery, and Paul is speaking again to a church that is encountering this false religion of the Gnostics and they would say, oh, yeah, it's all about mystery, but only the enlightened can know the truth. You've got to attain a certain status. You've got to be a member of our organization to get the secret handshake. Well, Paul is saying, listen, the mystery that I'm expounding has been proclaimed in the Old Testament and has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The truth has become discoverable because of divine revelation. It was hidden from past generations, but it's now been manifested, literally rendered apparent fully through the gospel to his saints whom God willed. It's God's will and God's purpose that you know the truth of the gospel. And so Paul says, that's what I preach. That's why I proclaim the truth. To make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. When you hear the word Gentile, I don't know what you think. You think about something from several thousand years ago, but we're the Gentiles. We're the ones who are outside the family of God that have been grafted in because of what Jesus has done on the cross. That's good news. So I was thinking this week, how are we doing on reaching the Gentiles? How is the message of the gospel spreading? So I did a little research, and according to the status of global Christianity, in the last 20 years between the year 2000 and the year 2020, which is 7,300 days, by the way. Africa, the continent of Africa, has had 37,825 new Christ followers every day. 
in the continent of Africa, every day over 37,000 people are giving their life to faith in Christ. I've asked a question before when we've studied Acts, when 3,000 people came to faith in one day, 5,000 come to faith in another day. Has that ever happened since then? Yes, just in the nation of Africa, over 37,000 come to faith every day. How about Latin America? In Latin America, 16,988 come to faith every day. Asia, 13,443 come to faith every day. North America, 1,999 come to faith every day. In Europe, guess how many come to faith in Christ every day in Europe? Somebody said not many. Eight. Eight. Over 37,000 in Africa. In Europe, eight people come to faith in Christ. Praise God for those eight. But here's the problem. In America and Canada, North America, nearly 2,000 come to faith every day. There's way more than that being born every day. So the gospel needs to spread. We need to take up the cloak that Paul has laid down for us. He's been made a minister. If you're a child of God, you may not be a vocational minister. You may not be being paid through a ministry or a church. We all take on the mantle of leadership, and he's going to get to it in the next section. But we've got to reach the world for Christ. We've got to make a difference here locally, and we've got to make a difference there globally. Pray to that end. The church is being persecuted in the world. There's people this morning that in order to worship Jesus are meeting in private rooms, are meeting at the risk of their own lives, are meeting at the possibility of being arrested, beaten, put in prison, or even put to death. That's happening today. One of my experiences in India, I got to go to a church on a Sunday, and I sat. They put chairs up for us preachers. Everybody else sat on the floor. And it was so packed that there wasn't room for anybody to sit. I literally had the children. They put the children at the front of the church. And this was just basically an apartment building. I counted about 120 in that room this, that morning. And I was having a moment because I thought that's like the first century. First century in the upper room, there was 120 gathered. There were so many people, the, the little kids were sitting under my chair. Their feet, they didn't have room for them. So they were, I mean, I didn't have room to put my feet. And they were excitingly worshiping Jesus. Knowing that at any minute, somebody could come through the door and put a stop to it. And the way they put a stop to it is they beat them. I, I know of preachers in India that will get beaten for the cause of Christ. And you know what they're doing the next day? They're back out telling people about Jesus. So it's a global mission, and it's the extent of Paul's obedience. That Paul, even when he was beaten, even when he's in a prison cell, even as he's writing this letter, is saying, I'm going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ regardless until they take my breath away and I can't do anything else. So that is the extent of Paul's ministry. But it's among the Gentiles, which includes me and you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus, if you're a child of God, Jesus has taken up residence in your life. And that is a hope that we have of one day spending eternity with God in heaven. He's made a down payment through the Holy Spirit. And one day we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. So that is the extent of his obedience. And then I love these last couple of verses. What's the point of Paul's message? We proclaim him. Who's Paul, who's Paul talking about when he uses the word we? He's talking about preachers. He's talking about people like Timothy, who he had discipled. He's talking about Epaphras, whom he had discipled. But I want to encourage you today, he's talking to you too. We, 
Paul's saying, I'm not the only one proclaiming this truth, but we proclaim him. In contrast to the them, they're proclaiming error. Paul's saying, we are proclaiming the truth. Two audiences that Paul had in mind. First, admonishing every man. When you hear the word man, it's the word anthropos, which means human, human faith. So it's talking about men and women. Paul says, I admonish every man. The word admonish means warning, caution. The audience he has in mind here is those who've never trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul says, for those who've never come to faith, I'm warning that you need to trust Christ as your Lord and Savior because apart from Christ, you will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell that is forever separated from God. So Paul says, I admonish. And then I teach. These are for converts. So Paul's saying, my goal is, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, my goal is, first of all, that you'd come to faith in Christ. But Paul doesn't leave them there. Paul says, now we need to disciple these people so that they, in turn, become disciples. So I teach every man with all wisdom. The Gnostics were all about knowledge. Knowledge is gathering of information. We live on an information superhighway. In your hands, if you're holding a cell phone right now, is you can, you can access millions and gazillion megabytes of knowledge. But if you don't apply it to your life in wisdom, it hasn't done you any good. In fact, Paul David Tripp, in a book that, he's, that I'm just reading called Dangerous Calling, he says there's a huge difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is an accurate understanding of truth. Wisdom is an understanding and living in light of how that truth applies to all the situations and relationships of your daily life. Knowledge is an exercise of your brain. Wisdom is the commitment of your heart that leads to transformation of your life. Knowledge is just gathering information. Wisdom is accurately applying that information. So Paul says we're teaching, we're admonishing the non-believers, we're teaching the believers with all wisdom so that, there's those two words again, it's already used them earlier in this passage that we're looking at, but so that we may present every person. Paul sees himself bringing you at some point to Christ. Paul sees you, if you're presenting people, complete in Christ, mature. It means that you've come to faith. It means that you're continuing to grow to be more like Jesus. The goal is spiritual maturity. The goal is to be like Christ. So Paul says, I'm, te- I'm admonishing, I'm teaching so that. Here's the purpose that I may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I labor. For this reason, this is what he's aiming at. This is the point. For this purpose, I labor. Literally, I feel fatigued. I've worked to the point of exhaustion. Paul says I labor and strive. He's taking a term from the athletic world, the agony. In fact, it's the word we get the word agony from. He said, I agonize. So Paul says, I work hard. I I labor to the point of exhaustion. I even agonize according to his power. Here's the cool thing. Paul says, as much as I want to see you come to faith in Christ, as much as I want to see you grow in faith in Christ, God wants it even more. And it's not by my power. If all I did was say, okay, go out there and lead people to Christ, go out there and evangelize, go out there and disciple, help people grow in faith, but do it in your own strength, we cannot do that. We don't have the power to do that. We'll fail the first day out. But Paul says, according to his power, his miraculous, effectual working, which works mightily within me, it was Paul allowing Jesus to live this power out through him. 
So my question again for you is, if somebody follows you, would they get closer to Christ or further away? You are an influencer, whether you know it or not. You're influencing people. If somebody looks at your life, would it be an influence for good? Would it be an influence for not good? Paul says, I'm working as hard as I can possibly work to tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. So my question for us as we close, application points is this. Is Christ your, your source of power? Or are you relying on your own experience? You can go to seminars, you can go to classes, you can read books. But if ultimately you haven't turned this over to Jesus Christ to be your power, not give you power, but be your power in and through your life, how are you handling suffering? If you've never experienced that, I promise you, you will. And it could be subtle. It could be when somebody finds out you're a Christian, they don't want to be your friend anymore. It could be that your boss treats you differently when they, he finds out that you've become a Christian. Or it could be that you lose your job. It could be, at some point in our country, like the rest of the world, that it could cost you your freedom, cost you your health, cost you your life. And my last question that I think Paul would ask, if he admonishes every man, the first question he's got to ask is, are you sure that you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? You can't go on to step number two. You can't be taught to grow in Christ if you haven't, first of all, come to faith in Christ. It's all about Jesus. So do you know for sure today that if you were walk out this door and breathe your last breath that you would spend eternity with God in heaven? That's the promise. That's the hope of glory in Christ that Paul's talking about. Has that ever happened in your life? And then secondly, are you growing? It's great that you've come to faith in Christ. You'll spend eternity with God. He'll never leave you or forsake you. But are you growing in Christ? Is somebody helping you grow? And then last, are you helping other people grow? Are you calling people to come alongside of you so that you can help them walk the Christian life as God would have them to walk it? Let's pray together to that end.